Hey there, uh, and welcome back to the Sophium podcast. Um, this is the last episode of the season, so I really hope you enjoyed all the episodes of the season so far. Uh, now, this episode will be another overview regarding uh, ancient Greek tragedy, so it's just a summation of uh, what we talked about. And then we will speak more about Athena's new form of justice found in Aeschylus' work, uh, the Orisaea, uh, specifically in the third section regarding the humanities. So without further ado, uh, let's just get straight into it and talk more about not only its overview, but Athena's new form of justice. So before expounding uh, about um, the humanities and the Oristae in general, I think it's best to again, you know, preface and uh, reintroduce this idea of the origin and the history of tragedies. Uh, so in, actually, in actuality, no one really intended to create a tragedy in the first place uh, it was almost accidental you know starting like we talked about starting with the dithyram this was just a precursor to tragedies now the dithyram was another type of representation for theater uh, that can be seen as a sort of uh, a proto-tragedy a precursor to tragic representations um, the dithyrams were especially popular during ancient greek uh, times and they were, in fact, even considered by the famous philosopher Aristotle to be where Greek theater originated. So in performing such dithyrams, uh, you know, these performers wore costumes, dance, played drums, lyres, flutes, etc. for celebration. And the dithyram was a hymn, choral, and song sung by a group or a chorus of people to honor the Greek god uh, Dionysus, right, who was the god of theater, harvest, rain, wine, emotion, you know, passion, life, death, uh, resurrection, um, etc. Right. So, dithyrams were performed uh, during times of harvest and other special important events such as weddings, uh, birthday parties, military successes, and so, uh, so much more. Right. It makes sense why people praised and honored the god Dionysus, as Dionysus was essentially the god of everything right so Dionysus represented the passions right we talked about and, and the emotions that every human being possessed and Dionysus represented uh, man's changing emotions and what it means to be man so unlike Dionysus the god Apollo uh, on the other hand to contrast this represented the logic the rationality the order uh, the beauty that too is uh, still present in human beings now apollo represented a side of humans that was absolute and already there compared to the representations of dionysus which seemed to be in a constant state of flux right these stark representations uh portrayed you know by dionysus and apollo it symbolized what represented man in, in the greek culture uh, you know as well as in theater there was always this balance between uh, the Dionysian elements, right? Chaos from Dionysus and the Apollinian elements, which would be Apollo, the order, right? However, you know, exactly how, how did dithyrams lead into the creation of what we now call tragedies? Well, dithyrams, they were able to transform into what we know now as Greek tragedies through the help of, you know, one man named Thespis. And we talked about him. Thespis is considered the father of tragedies, as held by uh, Aeschylus, um, as well as he was the first ever actor. And this is where we see the first ever actor interacting with the chorus, you know, the group singing with the singing the dithyrams. 
But, you know, how was it even possible uh, from these death rams we were able to arrive at a tragedy? Well, it was said that during these performances of death rams, the choral, the song, the dance, Thespes himself stepped away from the chorus and performed his own part, which molded him to become the first ever actor. And for the first time, we have a distinction, the chorus and the actor. And not only that, we have an interaction between the actor and the chorus, which inevitably led to the birth of the tragedy. So to extrapolate on, you know, moreover the etymology of the word tragedy, you know, it comes from the Greek word uh, tragodeia, right? Trago meaning goat, uh, and paired together, that would mean the song of the goat. Uh, but again, many historians believe that Thespis during these presentations or performances used to be paid by Go, and some would say he was uh, either paid or some say that actually th their voices, these actors had a voice that was pretty similar to the verses and the sounds of goats. Now, knowing the origin and beginnings of the tragedy, it is important to also know the background and the Greek culture around tragedies. So around uh, 6th century BC, a uh, tyrannical politician, right? We talked about this name, Pisistratus. He gave a specific order for tragedies to be shown every year. And this soon led to the creation of the city of Dionysia, named after the god Dionysus, right? These annual festivals would happen during the spring, and it would gain a lot of attention, attraction, tourists, uh, mostly for pleasure and commerce in order to celebrate the god. And these celebrations would take place every spring since it was, you know, cooler in that time of year. Uh, however, you know, there were also rural Dionysias. It was winter Dionysias as this took place uh, from far towns, you know, uh, far from Athens. And in the city of Dionysia, the first two to three days would be dedicated to different kinds of celebration, right, in honor for the god, which includes singing, procession, dancing, etc., and after these celebrations, the next three days were dedicated specifically to the tragedies. And these tragedies at the, at the city of Dionysia, uh, they were not only part of a, a religious festival to honor the god, but they were part of a didactic lesson, a duty, and a moral obligation, right? Such festivals were organized by the city and the government, and they were also sponsored by private citizens, uh, there were the form of taxes, as well as the wealthy, right? The rich would, they would usually provide services to everyone, uh, which would include the city of Dionysia. And the lay citizens, uh, you know, the regular citizens, uh, they wouldn't need to pay for the tickets uh, for the festival, as you know, it would just be waved off by the wealthy sponsors. So to Greek citizens, you know, theater wasn't mainly for entertainment. You know, how like, you know, we view modern theater today, it seems as if, the city of Dionysia was uh, mandatory for all citizens because uh, these theatrical representations taught citizens what to do and what not to do, right? And the city of Dionysia was a place for education, reflection of what one ought to do and refrain from doing uh, in society, specifically in Athens. And, and tragedies, you know, were more than just entertainment. They were... They were pretty much a necessity. So fully grasping the origin of tragedies and Greek cultural significance of tragedies, it's also important to introduce, uh, you know, one of the most well-known tragedians, the father of tragedies, and, and that author whose work, you know, we'll obviously discuss, and that's Aeschylus. 
So Aeschylus was born in Eleos, Greece, around 525-524 BC, and he was he wasn't just an author; he was a victorious soldier who participated in multiple battles against the Persians. Right, the Persians would always want to conquer Greece. Uh, he was well aware that he was a war hero, and he was very patriotic about serving uh, Athens. Being part of Athens meant a lot to Aeschylus, his whole personality, right? As he was able to fight in several significant uh, historical well-known battles, such as the Battle of Marathon, 490 BC, Battle of Salamis, 480 BC, as well as the Battle of Plataea in 479 BC. And besides being victorious on the battlefield, Aeschylus was also victorious at winning many awards and prizes at the city of Dionysia. You know, one of his most famous tragedies, the Oresteia, not only won first prize, but it was the first of its kind to be a trilogy that consisted of the same characters and same plot throughout, uh, you know, three consecutive representations. You know, something that has never been done before. And as an author... Aeschylus was innovative. So during that time when Thespis was the only actor, uh, Aeschylus actually introduced two actors and, and later three, thereby creating a whole different style within the field of tragedies. And another innovation that Aeschylus uh, incorporated was this departure from the tradition, traditional myths, right? So in the past, most tragedies would involve traditional uh, myths. Uh, but Aeschylus, however, broke from this rule by not only writing solely, uh, by not writing solely about myths, right? He he instead wrote about historical events such as the Persian War, and and soon after his successful career in Athens, he moved to Gela, Italy, uh, which is uh, pretty much in Sicily, I believe, in like the southern part of the tip of Italy, uh, to represent more some like uh, his other tragedies, right? And all things were going well until his um, sudden immediate tragic death uh, which was when he was writing uh, reading outside he was actually struck on the head by an eagle who dropped a turtle mistaking his uh, bald head for a hard rock right and despite this uh, unfortunate death you know Aeschylus's name you know still lives on as not only one of the uh, one of the greatest tragedians, but also the father of all tragedies. So before summarizing uh, the main plot of Oresteia and the specific event uh, of interest that I have in mind regarding the Eumenides, I think it's very uh, important and significant to first provide the actual uh, mythological background that actually underlines the Oresteia in order to fully understand the story. So the Oresteia stems from two brothers and kings of Mycenae, Atreus and Thyestes. So Atreus was angry with Thyestes because Thyestes had a love affair with Atreus' wife. So after a while, they started to go after one another. And one day, Atreus decided to invite Thyestes over for dinner, along with Thyestes' two sons. But it was simply a trick, as Atreus actually secretly uh, killed both of Thyestes' sons, and served it to Thyestes uh, as dinner. Atreus justifies such vile action, stating that, you know, this is a right to punishment for what you did with my wife. Thyestes exits, and he tries to find another way to, you know, kill his brother. So he went to the oracle uh, at Delphi, and Delphi expressed that Aegisthus, his other son, would avenge Thyestes when he grows older. 
So as the years pass, Aegisthus, uh, which is, again, the son of Theses, had an eye on Agamemnon and Menelaus, uh, who were the sons of Atreus, right? The two brothers uh, eventually married two sisters, Agamemnon marrying uh, Clytemnestra, and Menelaus marrying Helen, who was said to be the most beautiful woman on earth. You know, being just that, Paris, the son uh, of the king of Priam, actually decided that he needed to have her, right? And the reason for Paris's capture of Helen was due to the fact that Paris was a judge who had to decide and give a golden apple to the goddess he, he deemed to be uh, the most beautiful. Now, if given uh, to Venus, he would be guaranteed to have the most beautiful woman on earth. Um, and between Athena, Juno, Hera, and Venus, uh, Paris being the judge, gave the golden apple to Venus. So he went to Sparta, King Menelaus, right, and kidnapped Helen. And because Menelaus wanted her back, he convinced Agamemnon, you know, his brother, to put, to put together an army of the best Greek soldiers uh, he has to take back Helen and bring down Troy, right, thus leading to the Trojan War. And all these devastations uh, just for uh, Helen, uh, the wife of King Menelaus. And not only did all this lead to the destruction of Troy, but these events led to the decline uh, in Greece due to the fact that, you know, like I said in another episode, the majority of the youth of Athens actually perished in the Trojan War. So all this leads straight into the Oresteia, first with the play Agamemnon. So during this time, Agamemnon is away in Troy fighting to uh, bring back Helen for his brother Menelaus. But before his arrival at Troy, it is important to note one, one thing. Agamemnon actually sacrificed his own daughter, um, Iphigenia, due to the fact that his ships could not sail without the wind. And, you know, pleading for a victorious war, the god stated that he must sacrifice uh, one of his own for the winds to blow his ships to victory. Appalled by the sacrifice was his wife, Clytemnestra, right, the mother of Iphigenia. And Clytemnestra, despising Agamemnon for such a sacrifice, plans to avenge her daughter by killing Agamemnon when he returns. And knowing all of uh, this, uh, all of his spoil of war, right, Clytemnestra invites Aegisthus, uh, her new lover, to help bring down Agamemnon and reign over Argos. And when he returns, Agamemnon's concubine, right, uh, Cassandra, knows, right, she's aware that Clytemnestra will murder both her and Agamemnon. But she is bound to a curse where if she speaks about her prediction, no one will believe her. So as Agamemnon is in the bathtub, right, where he's bathing, he gets entangled in a cloth net. And then Clytemnestra kills Agamemnon and Cassandra. Aegisthus supports Clytemnestra by saying that such a murder is twofold. First, for the sacrifice of uh, their daughter Iphigenia, and the murder of his brothers by Agamemnon's father, Atreus. And as they pride themselves as the new rulers uh, of Argon, the chorus pray praise that Orestes, which is also Agamemnon's son, which is also you know the title of the book, Oresteia, they, the course prays that uh, Orestes returns so that he could avenge his own father. In the second tragedy, the libation bearers, 
Um, having been having been uh, exiled for quite some time, Orestes decides to return to, back to Argos, being sent by uh, Apollo's oracle. And his task and his destiny is to avenge his father by exacting vengeance upon the killers of his father, that being Clytemnestra, his own mother, and Clytemnestra's like secret lover now, Aegisthus, which would be, um, um, I guess, the person that he does not like. You know, although um, it doesn't seem, it seems like this is Orestes' plan. It also seems as if Apollo has forced Orestes to exact vengeance. Or else Orestes will have to face Apollo's wrath, his punishment. So Orestes, being a bit hesitant, he accepts his fate, and with the help of his sister Electra, plans out a way to carry out his mission. And he decides that he will find a way to gain acceptance into the palace and murder both Aegisthus and Clytemnestra. Now, at that place, Clytemnestra opens the door and asks who Orestes is. Well, he just states that he's just a fellow traveler and he's here to bring unfortunate news about their son, Orestes, who has passed, even though that is Orestes. Shocked by this, Clytemnestra tells Orestes just to come inside so that he can relay the news to her new lover, Aegisthus. Clytemnestra asks the nurse, uh, Calissa, to bring Aegisthus with his bodyguards. But the chorus intercepts this message right, and tells Calissa to tell Aegisthus to just come alone. So Aegisthus does so, and Orestes actually uh, outright kills Aegisthus because he's by himself. He doesn't have his guards. And hearing all this commotion, Clytemnestra sees what is going on and fears that Orestes will actually kill her. She begs and pleads, and Orestes hesitates. He's like at this crossroads. He doesn't know whether he should kill his own mother or not. However, at that moment, Pylades reminds Orestes about Apollo's order. He commits and stabs his mother, killing her. And after all this, the Furies are soon, you know, after to capture Orestes. You know, scared, he flees back. He flees to seek shelter at the shrine of Apollo. And it's actually here where Apollo uh, sedates the Furies, making them fall asleep so that he can give Orestes time to seek aid and shelter in Athens under Athena. Now, Apollo promises that all will be fine and that Athena will set up a trial to handle such a murder. Finally, in the Eumenides, Orestes arrives at Athens and prays to Athena for her help. And just as he prays, the Furies find him right after waking up and being scolded by the ghost of Clytemnestra for not capturing Orestes. And as they find Orestes, Athena shows herself and asks to explain who they are and what they need from her as she just wants to protect her city of Athens. And even after this explanation, Athena indeed you know, still wants to provide justice but fears the wrath of the furries as they are much older than her. Stating that this case is beyond her, she explains that she will gather several honorable Athenian citizens who will take part in a jury in the murder trial of Orestes. And now Athena asks, says, you know, I will pick the finest of my citizens and come back. They shall swear to make no judgment that is not just and make clear where in this action the truth lies. And as the trial commences, the Furies uh, represent the ghosts of Clytemnestra, while Apollo acts as, according to us, you know, the attorney for Orestes. 
and the Furies begin a cross-examination of Orestes, who does not deny that he killed his mother. When asked if he killed her, Orestes states, Yeah, I, I killed her. There shall be no denial of that. Orestes asking Apollo for support. Apollo steps in and states that Clytemnestra was no mother of Orestes. He expresses, The mother is no parent of that which is called her child, but only nurse of the new-planted seed that grows. The parent is he who mounts. Throughout this, the Furies argue that Clytemnestra's life uh, was worth just as much as Agamemnon, which Apollo states otherwise. Now, Athena asks the jury to decide and cast her ballot. She qualifies by stating that if there be a tie, her vote would be for Orestes, as she herself would support her father Zeus. Now, this is a ballot for Orestes. Uh, I shall cast. I am always for the male with all my heart and strongly on my father's side, which is what Athena states. The ballots are in, and Athena states that the man before us has escaped the charge of blood. The ballots are in equal number for each side, which means that since she casted her ballot for Orestes, Orestes remains free. And while all of this happens, the Furies become enraged. Now, the Furies are furious and angry to, due to the result of the trial. You know, they believe that this entire trial undermines their power and their ability to enact vengeance against those who have disobeyed the natural order in society. The, the Furies are angry to the point that they plan to let loose on the land the vindictive poison dripping deadly out of their hearts upon the ground and drag its smear of mortal infection on the ground. In short, they believe they have been mocked by the mortals and the gods of this younger generation. But Athena reconciles and says that, you know, they are far older and wiser than she is, and that her father gave her much intelligence uh, not to be despised. So she provides a new role for the Furies to be the patron of Athens. And this role would entail them to bring peace and protection and prosperity to Athens. She says, such life I offer you, and it is yours to take. Do good, receive good, and be honored as the good are honored. Share our country, the beloved of God. Athena expresses this to the Furies. And they accept the role, and the Furies' identify, identity right, is then transformed from the Furies to the Eumenides, which Athena calls uh, the kind ones or the kindly company. That's what the Eumenides uh, means. And I, I think this is very significant. This is a significant event in the Orestes or the Oresteia as it, is, it represents a shift from the old form of justice to this new form of justice instituted by, you know, according to the theories, the gods of the younger generation. You know, whereas the old form of justice was just an endless cycle of vengeance against one another, you know, whether that be from one family member to another or from the endless acts of vengeance by the Furies, this old form of justice did pretty much nothing to end this incessant suffering that resulted from these deaths. Right? Instead, Athena recognizes that you know she herself is not above this case, not above the law, and knowing her position in place uh, to decide a murder case, she institutes the first trial by jury, where the cases of murderers are put to trial in order to determine their fate. And this is very different from not only the old form of justice, 
but also the decision by the gods. Whereas in the past, gods may have decided the ultimate fate um, of the mortals, you know, or the punishment, right, or the result of one's actions. Athena appeals to honorable citizens of Athens to finally just decide the case at hand. Athena is the goddess of intelligence, wisdom, and justice. And not only did she provide justice by implementing a civil justice system, but she also knew her place. Realizing that she could not make an objective decision between the Furies and Orestes, she instituted justice by showing that even gods and goddesses, they are not always the end-all be-all of problems. It seems as if, according to the new form of justice created by Athena, gods and goddesses uh, are no longer, they no longer play like an inquisitorial role for seeking justice, but rather an adversarial role, whereby a prosecutor lays out the charges against the defendant, and the defendant replies by arguing their own side of the case. And if the jury, who is given the power to decide the result of the case, arrives at a deadlock, it is mainly up to the judge and goddess Athena herself uh, not to put the last vote, but to lay down the final word after all other avenues have been utilized, right? Such as through uh, hearing the debate between the prosecutor and the defendant, as well as the final votes by the jury represent this type of new form of justice, this new system. And in all, not only did Athena enact a somewhat, uh, I guess, a, a trivial process, you know, that we usually take for granted, the simple process, she set a precedent uh, for how one ought to provide justice in the ancient Greek society. You know, nevertheless, one can also say that she has affected many judicial systems throughout our own world. You know, whether it be an inquisitorial system or Athena's own adversarial just judicial system, Athena's incorporation of this new form of civil justice uh, compared to the former way of achieving justice through an endless cycle of vengeance laid down the pillars that forever uh, took precedent in matters involving justice in both ancient Greece as well as, you know, our own modern judicial systems that we can see today uh, in our own world uh, now, right, in the present. So to conclude, we discussed the origin and the history of tragedies, you know, dating from the early Dithyrams to the introduction of Thespis, who was the first person to interact with the course. And then we explored uh, the cultural ancient uh, Greek significance of tragedies in the city of Dionysia. And then we spoke about the father of all tragedies himself, Aeschylus, right, uh, and how he not only created the first tragedy, but created one of his um, you know most finest works, the Oresteia. And then we went over the mythological background of the Oresteia and reviewed the main points of each play within the trilogy. And lastly, we spoke about the unique event in the humanities that we usually take for granted: this civil justice system. And unlike the former concept of justice carried out by the Furies and other members contained in an endless loop of vengeance, you know, goddess Athena set a precedent and a foundation for a new form, new concept of justice, a civil justice system, as prevailed through many generations of societies even until today. And in all, um, 
you know what i i guess what i learned from this is it ranges from not only different types of tragic plots and exposition expositions in several plays when we look at uh, ancient greek theater and uh, dramas and comedies but also i realized that the cultural and historical significance can still be seen with us today such as with athena's new civil justice system and i think it's here where we realize that these greek tragedies aren't just some ancient plays from the past that have no significance because they're too old right but we realize that these are didactic expressions of art that have at least some or even a lot of meaning to even us in our society today so i really hope you uh, enjoyed this uh, recap this recapitulation of everything we talked about during the season as well as i hope you uh, uh you know enjoyed i guess <laughs> this analysis of athena's uh, new form of justice uh in uh the humanities found in uh, aeschylus's oresteia so that's the end of this season i really hope you enjoyed uh, the season um our next season uh is uh going to be involving ancient latin so it's more of just an introduction to the ancient latin language which uh predominantly uh ancient romans used um and uh, i i want to include ancient land because it's very important for the classics philosophy and history as you can see that quite clearly with like latin maxims and mottos so i wanted to introduce this latin language uh course here obviously if you're not interested in that feel free to uh move on to another season but i hope you uh find interest in that uh but for now i really hope you enjoy uh, uh i hope you enjoyed this episode as well as i hope you're enjoying uh this podcast series uh but that's pretty much it thank you so much and like again happy thinking